0: Some people think that traditional Japanese jujitsu is old and antiquated. These people think that it is ineffective in modern times. Well, they might be right. What they don't realize is that just like the weapons of war that have evolved since ancient times, from the humble wooden club to the arsenal of today's nuclear weapons and missile guided systems, so has Jujitsu evolved, find out in today's episode of how the gods of war have also shaped and molded traditional Japanese Jujitsu to flex and adapt to the threats of today. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host Sri, and today we are featuring co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing today, Shihan?
1: I'm doing great. How are you today, Sri?
0: Excellent and today we have a special guest, Sensei Jake Kosienda, third-degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu, and also the instructor of the South Windsor Dojo of Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. Welcome to the show, Sensei.
2: Uh, Thank you, Sri. Good to be here.
0: The topic of today's show is the adaptability and flexibility of traditional Japanese Jiu-Jitsu in modern times. I will turn it over to you, Sensei, to kick us off.
2: Okay, great. Well, this is definitely one of those topics that I think crosses most uh, jiu-jitsu practitioners mind as we go through life and we go through daily activities and events you wonder could you really do some of the things we learn in the dojo and we practice uh, in real life and i get questions like that a lot i know i've talked to uh, shihan st hilaire many times on this topic and i think that as uh as events unfold in, in Paris and, and in other places in the world, it's more appropriate than ever to be thinking these things. So I'm very curious as to what Shihan's thoughts are uh, now and, and how they might have evolved. Um, so to start things off, Shihan, big question for you. To set the stage, what was the purpose of traditional Japanese jujitsu before it became traditional and, and was new?
1: It's a warrior art, right? It's either lightly armed or unarmed self defense for. You know, warriors that were on the battlefield or were responsible for protecting others. It would be comparable to what goes on in the military today, right? There's a primary weapon system that we use in the military today, uh, firearms, etc. And then if for some reason, you know, you don't have access to them or they're taken away from you or you're caught by surprise, you you, know, you have to have some sort of self-defense reaction where you can beat your enemy without using your weapon systems or maybe you need to disarm them. Uh, in some way, there's probably some also some arrest and control component to the military. And I really think that was exactly the same back then. I mean, before firearms in Japan, of course, everybody was using various bladed type weapons, but it was still the same thing. I mean, they, they spent most of their time you know, training with their long swords, their short swords, their, their knives, you know, bow and arrows, spears, other weapons like that. But somebody who has experience on the battlefield, you know, inevitably sees somebody gets disarmed or something gets knocked out of their hand, and they still have to fight back against another armed person or or maybe even an unarmed person and, and prevail. So I really just don't think that that has changed at all. That's always been the purpose of jujitsu. And when you think about how the martial arts were taught back then, there were many jutsus, right? So jutsu meaning science or the scientific study of something. The name for, you know, using a spear or using a bow and arrow or using a long sword or a short sword or, you know, doing something unarmed or even when they got firearms, they they all ended in jutsu, right? So the scientific study of how to do those warrior-type activities. Jujutsu was, was simply the unarmed or lightly armed version of warrior-type techniques. And so I don't think that that's really changed other than the fact that when it came to the West, Europe and America, we weren't living in sort of these warrior clan type societies any longer. People just enjoyed practicing them for practical self-defense. And jiu-jitsu kind of took off on its own, separate from, you know, necessarily learning all of the other warrior weapon systems. It really just became an unarmed combat style. And that's what became popular.
2: Back when jiu-jitsu started, which was hundreds of years ago essentially. Was there as much rule of law that interfered with someone who was practicing and their decision on what to do with their opponent? And, and what I mean by that is today, if you were to use jiu-jitsu or any combative art for defense, you always have in the back of your mind the rule of law and what that might do as far as what the police or, or the justice system might consider your behavior in the context of when you used whatever art you used, jiu-jitsu would would likely be what i would use back when jiu-jitsu started not too much rule of law so has the control or the uh, use of jiu-jitsu in meeting physical threats has that changed and has that altered any of the techniques and the way they're performed today than they were back when it was a pure martial art for purposes of essentially warring and battling other clans and other other villages or other groups of people
1: Yeah, I think it absolutely has changed. Um, You know, back then, it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, warring clans or families, maybe even war with other countries, like when Japan was fighting China or Kanawa. These arts were mainly used by soldiers. The everyday person was rarely ever taught these type of things, not until the West came to Japan and they disbanded the samurai warriors and the warrior clans, and then governments were were set up, sort of Western-type governments, and rule of law and policing was put into place. Up until that point, there really wasn't a need for that because the the laws of, of war are different than civilian-type laws. But then suddenly they were disbanded. People still wanted to practice these warrior arts. Most of the blade arts were eliminated pretty quickly. They were just kind of kept preserved in a few families. The unarmed arts, they were still practiced for a while. People didn't really like them being practiced, but they were. And, you know, here were these warriors that had no war, right? So they didn't have any idea if their stuff worked or didn't work, you know, just same, same kind of questions that we had today. And sometimes they'd just go into town or go to bars or they'd start fights or, or do whatever just so they'd get out there and actually use their jujitsu in real life situations. And jujitsu got a really bad name at that point, right? Even the people in Japan were just like, yeah, we cannot have this, right? We're trying to live by some kind of, you know, moral code and, and rules of law and we can't have people walking around just eating up other people laws were put in place. You really just couldn't do that. You could practice that inside of of a dojo. The government even set up some martial art training halls for people to go and specifically train under instructors and preserve the knowledge, but it wasn't something that you could just go out and use. And then, of course, judo got invented, which was really just a sportive version of jujitsu. You know, everybody liked that idea, right? It It was focused on education. It was sports. There was ranking. There were trophies. There were competitions. So people were able to go out and kind of satisfy that need of understanding you know, how effective is their training in a non-warring environment, although sport is always some sort of version, some sort of watered-down version of of war. And they were able to do that, and that really took off or spread across the world. The jiu-jitsu arts that were still focused on really deadly kind of self-defense and warrior techniques, they they still existed in in small dojos in Japan and had spread a little bit to Europe and America, but they really just weren't that well-known for a very long time. I mean I know when I was lucky enough to meet my first jujitsu instructor. You now I don't think I'd ever heard of it outside of like maybe a comic book or something to that effect. Here was a real dojo and at that point taekwondo was really, you know, and karate was really um, you know, popular with everybody. Nobody had heard of jujitsu at all when I started in 1980. You know, it really felt like sort of a subculture, you know, unto itself. And there were probably a few dojos around the United States at that point, but it just wasn't a popular thing. There were no competitions, it wasn't known, there was no UFC, no MMA. The only way that you could go out and practice was if you were doing like judo or you were doing karate competitions. There was no way to go out and prove whether or not your jiu-jitsu worked because of the rule of law that was in place in a non-warring society. Kind of a long-winded answer, but I hope that covered it.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think it did actually. It brings up a couple other questions. You mentioned your last point was that when you started in the very early 80s, no one had heard of jiu-jitsu. However, even today, I find that when people do hear and comment about hearing what jiu-jitsu is, they have the obvious reference to Brazilian jiu-jitsu as as prevalent and as talked about. It is in the news and in UFC and other things like that. And when you try to explain to some people that this, that there's Japanese jiu-jitsu, which is a little different, you get that little tilted head, inquisitive look like, well, well, I thought Brazilian jiu-jitsu was jiu-jitsu. What is your thought on how Japanese jiu-jitsu still fits in as a prevalent martial art, even in the context of the other disciplines that exist today? And what I mean by that is it still doesn't seem to be Japanese jiu-jitsu, doesn't seem to be as well known. Do you think Japanese jiu-jitsu has a, a more dominant place military type uh, areas the police the military things like that more so or less so than brazilian jiu-jitsu or judo or karate or, or taekwondo or or is it really uh, a matter of preference as to which to use in those type of situations
1: sure so let me answer that in a in two parts first i want to talk about that understanding of what jiu-jitsu is when you refer to jiu-jitsu people automatically assume we're talking about brazilian jiu-jitsu i don't i don't want to get scientific about it but just the fact that you can have the term Brazilian jiu-jitsu just points to the fact that it's Japanese right because there is no word jiu-jitsu in Portuguese so you That's
2: know, a very good point. Actually. They're just
1: basically <laughs> saying that it's Japanese jiu-jitsu as practiced in Brazil I mean, it would be like saying that I'm a, a Norwegian American kind of thing, right? It's 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 one of those type of things we accept how those terms work But it really doesn't doesn't make any sense at all. There's only one kind of jiu-jitsu. It's Japanese jiu-jitsu They're the ones that invented it. That's why it's called jiu-jitsu in the Japanese language. Other people have taken that art and adapted it over time to meet their specific needs. In Brazil, there was a family that everybody knows about, the Gracies. They were taught by uh, a Japanese, actually a Japanese judo person. But there is a self-defense component in the more advanced parts of judo, and it's it's jiu-jitsu. And so they developed it, and they kind of developed their own way of doing it. And that became really popular and it became popular for the reason that I said that judo became popular because it's the place where you can go and prove that all the time and money that you spend in training, that it actually works. But you're not in a self-defense. You're not in a warrior war type situation, right? You're in a, a, a sportive situation where you win by someone else giving up. And then there is this thing where you can prove that you are better or not better than someone else. It lets you know, it kind of feeds your ego, right? I put in all this training, and here's the reward that I get for it. Because in self-defense jujitsu, is no reward, right? It's kind of an ego road. You train to protect yourself and hope that you never have to. And then if you have to, it's certainly not a sport, right? Nobody's waiting for anybody to tap out. There is no winner. There's only a survivor. It's a completely different mindset. But at the same time, they're all just aspects of the same art. So then to further go into your question, we were talking about the military and police. They've taken the art of jujitsu and mixed in with other type of grappling and, and self-defense arts, but mainly jujitsu, and they've uh, adapted it to their situation, right? In the military, they've realized that they're just like there always has been. There, there are times when you don't have your, your weapon or your primary weapon, and you have to defend yourself with your bare hands, sometimes against a, another weapon, and you need to have techniques to do that and jujitsu was chosen you know if you listen to my podcast about about military combatives jujitsu was chosen because it's always worked it definitely works against another person when you know how to twist their arm their wrist how to choke them unconscious how to throw them all those type of things those things have always worked and they still work for this unarmed self-defense even needed by the military for police officers you know they they're they're not at war they're trying to protect the citizenship and they're trying to control criminals so they kind of lend themselves more towards the arrest and restraint and control portions uh, of jujitsu although a takedown might be necessary and they might need to know how to have weapon retention and you know taking away weapons from other but again all of those things just they they go back to everything that you learn uh in in japanese jujitsu Addressing like judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or an art like sambo or something like that, where it's very competitive focused, there are elements of that version of jiu-jitsu that are incredibly effective in self-defense, but there are also lots of elements of that that are not effective in self-defense at all. I mean, the whole concept of going down to the ground in a combat situation in combat gear with you know many people around with weapons and that kind of stuff, you know, just doesn't make any sense. People get killed doing that, so that's that's not a choice. But conversely, if you're talking about pure self-defense jiu-jitsu, then all aspects of that are applicable in self-defense. If you're being taught self-defense correctly, there's really nothing that you're doing that you know is meant to get you in, in any kind of trouble. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that there isn't groundwork. Uh, there is because you certainly could end up on the ground. But the whole goal is to either disarm the person on the ground um, or you know, be able to escape and, and get up and run away. Or if, you know, if you're really stuck to be able to choke somebody unconscious and then get up and and go away, right? It has nothing to do with getting points or taking a dominant position or submissions or, or any of that kind of thing. So hopefully that kind of encapsulates uh, what you were talking about.
2: Yeah, that, that's a very interesting answer. I, I, I understand what you're saying, which leads to to another question. Is jiu-jitsu adaptable or should it be adapted, I think, would be a better question. Should and the training of it be adapted to the expected use of it. And what I mean by that, and this is sort of sort of a riffing off of what you just said, would the training and uh, focus and emphasis of the military or the police in practicing and training jiu be different than what a civilian would or ought to be focusing on when they train and practice jiu-jitsu?
1: So that is a great question, and just like making me smile that you even asked it, because I actually spent some time this morning going through a bunch of jujitsu notes. And you'd think after like 35 years I wouldn't do that anymore, but I I actually do, and I'm I'm constantly thinking about self defense and jujitsu. And I started thinking to myself, even even a little broader than what you're asking. So yes, absolutely adaptable towards its needs, right? It's as we see, it's adaptable to sport, it's adaptable to combat, adaptable to law enforcement. There's all, all kinds of ways that uh, that it can be utilized. It's a very versatile art. But even for a civilian, I think of uh, exactly how we teach the Kobokai system and charts and how it's very focused on how people learn and it was put together that way, right one step at a time building blocks you know getting you from here to there so that you you really know what you're doing. But I also started thinking today a little bit about, the prevalence or the common things that may happen to a civilian in everyday life and which things might happen more prevalently than other things. Whatever that answer may be, if, if in real life, I'm just making this up, right, somebody would more than likely grab you by your shirt or your hair and punch you so that you couldn't pull it back and get away, then maybe we should spend more time on working on those techniques and less on things that may never and probably never ever will happen to the person, not that they shouldn't know how to do it or what the answer is, lining how much you practice certain things compared to other things based off of what's more likely that's going to happen. Because I know I'm a civilian now. I'm no longer in the military. It's more likely that somebody is going to try to carjack me because I have a nice car or they're going to stick me up at an ATM machine or Maybe I bump into somebody and they give me a shove because they, you know, don't like that I bumped into them or just some those type of things are much more likely to happen to me. Maybe in this today's crazy world, I could be in a hostage situation that, you know, that might be that might be likely or I might have to disarm somebody. And and that certainly might be might be likely because, you know, those who are more weak and afraid tend to use weapons to attack you, whereas there are other other techniques that I may not. I use as often in my real life, but it's important for me to know because I, I may instruct somebody else in the future, or it's just really important to, to know for the just-in-case situation. So I've recently just been looking at that, and that's adaptability within only a certain, you know, a certain realm of jiu-jitsu, you know, jiu-jitsu for civilians. So I think it's such a versatile art. that The more you, the more you think about it, the more you practice it, the more, the more sides to it you discover.
2: In following through with that thought, for example, if you were to take a, a single a technique and analyze it and think about how it can be trained or practiced or taught, the circumstances that one would expect to be in, the more likely uh, for a civilian, would be much different than the military or someone who might be overseas traveling through the Middle East or,
0: uh, or that sort of thing. Well,
2: what are your thoughts about a single technique and how it can be adapted? for different expected scenarios and desired outcomes. So harking back to an earlier question I had in society, you you don't want to get arrested, you don't want to be charged with crimes, but yet you need to defend yourself. Whereas in the military, you're not really concerned about the end result other than that the person you're fighting is absolutely incapacitated and and dead if if possible. How easy is it for a single technique, let's say osoto Gary, to be adapted to the various desired outcomes,
1: and expected situations? Sure. So I I think that's um, absolutely possible. I think there are probably groups of techniques that are easier to do that with for specific audiences. There's probably a group of techniques in jiu-jitsu that are more adaptable for a combat soldier than would be adaptable for, say, a police officer or civilian or for sport. I wouldn't say that across all of the techniques, they're all equally adaptable because they're not. But there are some that you can simply do in a way that might control or restrain somebody, but with a slight variation or a slight increase in effort could break bones, for, for example. It could be a weapons takeaway, right? If somebody sticks me up at an ATM machine or, or puts a gun in the window of my car, I can disarm them and disengage and move away and keep myself and my family safe, or I could even disarm them and knock them unconscious or whatever on the ground and then go and call the police and, and say what has happened. Completely different if you're in the military, but doing the same techniques, right? I, I might do the exact same disarm or the exact same throw, but sometimes it's what I do right after. If I remove the pistol from somebody's hand and shoot them in the head, totally acceptable in the military, not so acceptable in civilian life. Uh, <laughs> It's what you do afterwards, how you continue through with this. I think in the Aikijitsu type techniques, those arrests and restraints can easily be done by a civilian or to control someone, whereas you could just do it with a completely different attitude and just, you know, break bones and tear tendons and completely disable somebody in a combat type of situation. I think where we may take someone down to the ground with a throw or a takedown and then continue to engage with them in order to do an arm bar or, or do a choke or something to that effect in a civilian type situation. In a military situation, they may take them down with the exact same Gary and then they're not worried about an arm bar or a choke. They're going to like get them down as quickly as possible, put their knee on their chest and then, you know, reach down to their thigh and pull out their, their pistol and, and shoot the enemy maybe just that slight variation on, on what's going to happen next is what the adaptability of the techniques might be.
2: Very often when I'm um, teaching students and I see them practicing and training, I remind them that they're going to, and I use this phrase a lot, you're going to do it like you train it. And what I usually mean by that is if you're doing it half ass or with not a lot of focus and you're not really trying hard, you're going to do that in a, in a, in a real-life situation. But In thinking about today's uh, topic, it also occurred to me that training it in one particular way could make a difference in how you then are able to manage a technique in the environment you want. And and you just pointed out a point of you may not want to kill or break bones. You may just want to subdue. So what are your thoughts on training within the dojo and making sure that the uh, way you train a technique, not just the emphasis and the heart and the spirit that goes into the way you train that technique, and create that muscle memory and that um, subconscious thought process that just takes over when you're executing. Should the practice of and training of jiu-jitsu be in, in the dojo be specifically designed with the fact in mind that
1: how you're likely to need it and want to use it in real life? I absolutely agree. I think putting the the mind-body connection into your head, right, creating those neural pathways, learning the motions of the techniques, I think that needs to happen slowly over time. I would rather see a student practice covering their head from a punch, going in, grabbing the person's waist, taking them down in Kosoto gaki, being in mount, maybe doing a katagatami. I'd rather see them do that 50 times at half speed and relatively cooperatively while their brain is sort of forming those normal neural pathways to really learn that technique than to do it quick and sloppy, right? Or to do it hard and and sloppy because your brain is actually going to learn what it is that you're doing, right? So I'd rather see those patterns be formed with the perfect execution of the technique for a while before we start to increase speed. So the increase in speed is really just going to come from familiarity. You don't have to try to go faster. You'll just naturally go faster over time as your body becomes more and more familiar with the motions and the reactions. But then I think there also needs to be a component where not that it's faster or harder, but that it's unplanned for and unexpected. So when you do that unrehearsed self-defense, you know, with a partner, and they're literally able to just attack you in any street form that they wish, and you have to respond with whatever that appropriate answer is, is a much more effective exercise than just telling somebody to go really, really hard when they're practicing their technique. Because going hard and going fast on a technique that's prearrange that you all know exactly what you're supposed to do on both sides of that equation doesn't teach your brain as much as learning the reaction from slow practice and then having to react with the appropriate timing of somebody who's attacking you and you have no idea what the attack is going to be so i'd rather see them doing that then i think that there is a component that we do at kobakai which is the sportive component which is where we do randori like judo randori or we do Nawaza on the ground, which has less to do with you're going to be fighting like that and more to do with you're feeling the resistance and the aggression of another person that is really trying to stop you from doing what you're doing and is trying to do something to you because that trains the brain in a whole different way. That's not really technique-focused. That's really timing focused, it's very spirit focused, good physical training for you to do. So I think all of those components together is what makes good training. Slow, consistent learning of the perfect form of the technique over and over and over again with a semi-cooperative partner, then developing the speed and the reaction time, then being able to pull it off in unrehearsed self defense, and then being able to do sportive aspects uh, in order to train the spirit. Do you
2: think training jiu has evolved over time? In other words, uh, back when it was uh, not a traditional, but it was actually new. Did they train the same way we train today? or it, it, Should we be training the same way they did years ago? Or is that something
1: that also has to adapt with time? I think it has to adapt with time. So if we're talking about when jiu-jitsu was used by the samurai, when it had many names other than jiu-jitsu because it was used on the uh, field of combat, I can tell you right now, I think most of the Jitsu practitioners today would get killed. And I don't think they're going to get killed because the people are bigger or stronger or faster or have better technique. I think it's because they had a field of combat mindset. There was no tapping out. There was no submissions. There was no, I win and you lose. And then we come back to the dojo the next day on the battlefield, right? Whatever was going to happen, it was life and death. And that's a whole completely different attitude. I think then when that stopped and jiu-jitsu became quote-unquote traditional jiu-jitsu where it was practiced in a dojo, uh, maybe in Japan still or just coming to the United States or whatever, they were preserving techniques in a non-war time and they were going through the motions and they were making sure there was perfection of technique so that it was preserved forever. In that case, I think a modern jiu jitsuka would kill those people. I mean, I think just the fact that we train how we train today and how we have sportive aspects... We would obliterate those people. And then we have what we have today. Very few people get to use their jiu-jitsu in a combat situation. Most of them do it in the dojo or in a sportive situation. So there's an athletic component to it. We're probably at a pretty decent place as long as pure sport does not eliminate pure self-defense. Because that's what jiu-jitsu is here for. It's for the weaker person to be able to defend themselves against somebody who's trying to hurt them to be able to defend yourself against against weapons that might be used to injure you and you know protect your family. I mean, that's the essence of jiu-jitsu. You have to train hard to be able to do it for real. And I would hate to see that go away uh, being you know run over by any kind of sportive aspect. And then for the people that are in the military, I don't think that's ever going to go away. I don't think it would even matter what happens in the civilian world. I think the military is always going to need to have an unarmed form of combat. Jiu-jitsu is by far... The most effective form of that i don't i don't think that's ever going to change i think if we could you know be frozen in ice and come back 500 years from now there would still be some form of unarmed combat and it would probably look an awful lot like jiu-jitsu in some ways
2: this may seem like a maybe perhaps an unfair question but it's i'm going to ask it anyways for me, Brian. <laughs> great where do you think or how do you think jiu-jitsu ought to adapt in the future given What we know is going on in society, the various changes, and and perhaps this is more personal opinion, but where you think society might be headed, uh, what adaptations would you like to see or think will happen regardless of whether you'd like to see them?
1: Well, um, sadly, I think the world is just uh, continuing to be a very violent place. I think if you don't have violence in your life, you're just a very lucky person, and I I think that's, that's wonderful. I wish the world was a much more peaceful place than it is. But it's just not. There's people that don't have a lot of regard for, for life or property out there, very low morals. They're willing to act like animals. And unfortunately, you're either going to be the victim or you're going to take care of it yourself. You know, I'm not advocating that everybody goes out and gets armed or any of that kind of thing, but the danger is real out there. You don't have to be a combative person. You don't have to be a soldier anymore to you know guarantee that you might be in a combat type of situation. You could just be an everyday civilian living their regular life and somebody wants to shoot up the place or somebody's going to you know whip out a knife at a bar or somebody's going to try to take you your, your car or your wallet or those things. They just, they just happen. So first and foremost, I think self-defense that works is really important for everybody to learn, at least in some way, shape, or form. I'm not saying that everybody needs to dedicate themselves to five years and get their black belt and all that kind of stuff, but I think everybody needs to teach their children. I think everybody needs to learn some form of being able to escape, to be able to throw, to be able to strike, to be able to disarm somebody else, just to remain safe in in this world. And then you just pray you never have to use it. How is it going to adapt in the future? Well, I think we're always going to have the combat sport arts. Things like MMA are here to stay. And I'm, I'm only saying that because we've always had, like boxing, That's always been out there, and and people like to see people fighting each other in a sportive way that has rules because it appeals to kind of our more base nature, but at least there's some controls around it. So I think that kind of thing is going to continue. I think the sport version of jiu-jitsu is always going to be there. People enjoy it very much. It's great physical fitness. People get great camaraderie from it. People love winning trophies and and those type of things, so that's always going to be there. And then there's just going to always be a need for self-defense. But what I hope is that people focus on self-defense that works because there's way, way too many instructors out there that know they can open a business and make a bunch of money off of it because they can pump a lot of people through the door. They can have tons of kids classes. Everybody can have 400 different belts with stripes on it. And they're paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars every month. And, you know, there's birthday parties and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? If you want to do that for a social thing. For an activity for yourself or your kids, awesome. But if you're there for self-defense, I really, really want people to focus on stuff that actually works in real life. And I think jiu-jitsu is going to fit that bill. There may be new weapons uh, involved in the future. If they show up, good jiu-jitsu instructors will figure out ways to you know, defend against them. You know, I think there's always going to be a need for unarmed self-defense. Because I don't think every citizen feels comfortable walking around armed all the time. Even if they are, very few of them are trained. It's just not really the answer for everybody. And being able to take care of yourself with your bare hands is always going to be a need.
2: And just touching a little bit far, further on that last part that you mentioned, do you think commercialization in, in the pursuit of the almighty dollar has influenced, perhaps forced jiu-jitsu to, be, to adapt to the need to make money in order to perpetuate the art?
1: Hmm, that's a really interesting question. If you're going to be running a school where you are able to expose people to the self-defense arts and you're able to teach them how to defend themselves, there's going to be some kind of cost associated with that, right? Unless you, you know, are doing it on your own property or something in, in a building that you built. But in general, there's going to be some kind of cost to teach those people. At the very least, there'll be some overhead for rent and electricity and and those kind of things. And and an instructor who has spent years learning the art and learning to be a good instructor deserves to be paid something for that skill set. You know, most of these people have put in, you know, like 10 years or so of hardcore physical and mental training in order to instruct people in self-defense and they absolutely deserve to have that paid for because there's value for it. But done in its pure sense, where you're really focused on making people have the ability to defend themselves, which is going to be difficult, which means you're probably not going to have a school that's got 300 students in it because it's difficult. Um, I, I think when you make the choice to go for the numbers and the money at the expense of the effectiveness of the self-defense part and the teaching of it, then I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't, just don't agree with that. That's, that's not where my mentality is. I mean, I'm dealing with someone else's physical safety. Uh, I feel like I have a responsibility there, and I feel every good martial art instructor should feel that they have some kind of responsibility there. That what I teach you is going to work if your your physical body is in danger from somebody else. So if you' if you're not doing that, I'm not in entire agreement that you are truly a martial art teacher.
2: So Xian, in, in answering a lot of your questions, it occurred to me that not only we're talking about situational adaptability, but how about individual adaptability? In other words, either physical limitations, height, size, strength, disability. I've had students come in, uh, one in particular, who used a cane. And it was a little bit of a, a challenge to think, hmm, how can some of these be executed, even though her stability and foundation may not be the greatest? How adaptable is jiu-jitsu to the individual quirks and tech, uh, problems that an individual might experience?
1: I think very certainly in those type of situations where there's any kind of physical disability, you are certainly not going to be able to have them execute every single technique within a system. Just the the ability won't be there. But it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't many things that are able to do either directly or with some sort of adaptation that gives them a much better chance of defending themselves than they could without that knowledge. So it's a it's a challenge for an instructor to kind of look uh, at their their own knowledge set and think about it a little bit and say, geez, how you know how do we adapt that to a person that has those kind of, those kind of needs. And then as far as size and ability and all of those things, uh, they all do come into account. If I have a a small person, um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on, you know, Mariana here for a minute. She's a woman, she's small, although you know, athletic and strong. She's going to have certain challenges that somebody that's a, you know, a six foot two, 200 pound guy is not going to have. Do we teach her every single thing that we teach at the school? Absolutely. Why? Because she's a martial artist, and she may also be interested in being an instructor or something at some point, and she wants to help others, so she should have that broad knowledge. But what am I going to spend time with her on, and and am I going to adapt certain things for her to be more effective against a larger and stronger person? Absolutely, and it's up to the instructor to think about those things as they're going through. I mean, they, I've walked up to every student pretty much that I can think of or remember and said at one point, Hey, listen, I know we're doing it this way, but because I don't know, whatever you've got long legs or because you're short or whatever, like, you know, this is the way that I think you would probably pull this off more effectively. So let's, you know, let's practice it that way. And, uh, I think that's, that's been incredibly, been incredibly effective. So yeah, you, you do have to adapt it to different body sizes, body styles. People are either quick or slow or or whatever. That's kind of the responsibility of uh, the instructor. That's why there's so much responsibility in, in being a true martial art instructor.
2: And jiu-jitsu allows for that sort of changing and adaption of the technique for that type of limitation, whether it be height, strength, disability, bad knees, missing a limb. Uh, jiu-jitsu can be adapted for those situations, you think, in your opinion?
1: Well, I... I... I, I think it has to be. I'm not even sure if my opinion counts. <laughs> I think for it to be a viable martial art, it's going to be viable for as many people as possible, right? I'm not going to say if you're Stephen Hawking's in a wheelchair that, you know, jiu is going to be really useful for you, but it may be really useful for the person pushing your wheelchair. Um, so in general, I, I do think that Every single body size and style, there needs to be some adaptability for them. It may not happen right at the beginning, right? Because we need everybody to get the basics and understand how how it all works. But then, then with time, you know, I think a good instructor will look at each one of his students and and begin to adapt their specific style to their natural abilities and you know their natural state.
0: So let me jump in here, Shihan. I have a quick question. I was recently reading uh, something on Cora online where a poster was claiming outright that traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu is ineffective in modern times. However, I did pull two themes from reading through the comments that I read. One was if people really didn't readily admit it, that they didn't know much about traditional or Japanese jiu-jitsu in general, mostly they've heard of judo and BJJ and MMA and and the other arts. One, is there a standard for traditional or Japanese jiu-jitsu today where you have BJJ and Brazilian and others, and two, where should somebody who wants to learn more
1: go? Sure. So let me let me answer this question in a, an incredibly controversial way. I 100% agree with that person's statement, even though you thought I would not. I absolutely agree that traditional Japanese Jujitsu is probably ineffective uh, in today's modern world, and I say that because I know what they're talking about when they use the words. Traditional Japanese jujitsu. They're not really referring to the fact that you might wear a traditional uniform or use a belt system or use the Japanese language or bow in class or, you know, have a lineage back to Japan. I think what they're really talking about is Japanese jujitsu that got preserved from that period that I talked about earlier in the podcast between when it was used as a combat art in Japan and modern times. So in that period of time where they were just trying to preserve each one of those techniques through history because they did not any longer live in a warring state, those those techniques became very stylized, I will say. Right. They they would sort of have these very marching kind of movements and they would move slowly and they would be very incredibly precise and slow in how they did a throw or how they demonstrated a choke. Um, and so those were all done to preserve the art during a very difficult period of time. And some traditional, in quotes, schools have continued to this day to, to preserve those arts. So I will absolutely agree. You know, jujitsu practiced in that style are very, very ineffective because they're not done with speed, with spirit in combat situations. They don't use modern training techniques they're just preserving this historical thing. It would be the same thing as asking, hey, do you think people that do civil war reenactments would be effective in combat in Iraq today? You know, and everybody <laughs> yeah. would laugh at that. They'd be like, well, well you know, of course not. All they're doing is they're preserving a slice of history for us to all witness how that was. Well, that's exactly what traditional, what they mean when they say traditional jujitsu is. It's that preservation of, of the historical version of, of of a period of time in jiu-jitsu but when i think of traditional jiu-jitsu when i think of what how jiu-jitsu was practiced when it was real and it was active it continued to change and adapt according to the needs of the modern battlefield of that time and that's what jiu-jitsu continues to do today if it's real live living jiu-jitsu that's what i think of as traditional jiu-jitsu it means it's self-defense focused and it adapts to the current situation so i totally understand what they're saying I just don't think they know what they're saying, right? I think they're just referring to this historical preservation view of, of uh, jiu-jitsu and not, not a modern self-defense, continually living and adapting view of, of jiu-jitsu.
0: Thank you. That's a great way of putting it. The second part of the question is, is there a standard today for Japanese jiu-jitsu?
1: Uh, there isn't. Um, you know, just like back in the day where it was slightly different in every clan and every family, every view continues to be that way today. And... You know, you can spend time, you know, doing the exception report, right, where you look at all the differences and and point to this, that or the other thing. But really what you need to do is, you know, you need to kind of step back and you need to look at all the commonalities. There's only so many ways that you can twist up a body, choke it out, arm bar it, throw it. Um, we're dealing with other human beings. Um, at the end of the day, the core of all jujitsu remains the same. Um, it may be taught slightly different ways, but... The standard is doing all the things that actually work and are effective in in combat. If they're not, then throw them out. Don't bother wasting your time on them.
2: I don't think I have any more questions
1: for you, Um, Shia. I'm glad I I covered that. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think the whole theme here, which was great, was really just about the adaptability of the art. And I think we've touched a few things. I mean, the art is something that was developed by people over a long, long period of time across many, many, many experiences and situations. And that's why it's such a broad and fantastic uh, self-defense art. And it's so broad that it can be adapted to sport. It can be adapted to arrest and restraint for law enforcement. It's usable in the military and just for everybody's everyday civilian life to protect them themselves and their family. So it certainly is one of the greatest you know, martial arts that has ever existed. And I'll also take a moment for like a shameless plug here for uh, Sensei Jake. He runs a, a Kobokai Jiu-Jitsu school in South Windsor, Connecticut. It is a fantastic uh, facility. He's very, very, very focused on the self-defense aspects of Jiu-Jitsu. Very, very concerned with the ability of all of his students you know of all ages and sizes and skill sets to be able to defend themselves I know I personally interacted with you both as a student and as an instructor for years and, and we've had a lot of conversations about your philosophies about self-defense and for everybody listening to this out out there if you're in the Hartford Connecticut area or if you you know you want to travel from wherever to, to this dojo if you're serious about learning how to defend yourself it is a fantastic place to, to go and do that and, and since they Jake and the other black belts there will spend an awful lot of attention on, on you and making sure that you truly know how to defend yourself.
2: Well, thank you very much, uh, thank you uh, for the shameless plug and, <laughs> and, and thank you for answering all the questions today. I think your insight and experience in the decades of, of experience and training that you had lends some significant insight into the adaptability of Jiu over the years and, and in the future.
1: Sure, and I'd be happy at any time in the future if we want to get together and chat again. I think the people listening to this find it interesting. You know, they not, maybe no, don't all have the opportunity to hear some of the instructors in their in their school system just you know having a conversation about things, and and they find it interesting to listen to, and it helps them in their training. Um, you know, I definitely want to continue to do that, and I really want to thank you, Sri for keeping this all going. I can't tell you how many compliments I get on these podcasts. People absolutely love your introductions. Uh, they get more and more and more creative as time goes by, and I really think that is your signature on this. I um, Keep keep it going because people just they just can't wait to just hear what's gonna, how this thing is going to start out every single time. So I, I really appreciate the work you're putting into that, and looking forward to the next next opportunity to do a podcast together.
0: Thank you. I love doing awesome. this. You know. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Sensei Kosienda, for joining us today. Uh,
2: very welcome. Very welcome. Thank you for inviting me.